Mormon Discussions and its lineup of great podcasts is about helping Latter-day Saints like you tackle deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping these podcasts alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the programs on this podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber. Or making a donation at mormondiscussions.org. Again, that's Mormon Discussions, plural, with an S on the end, dot org. Donate today and support programs like Mormon Discussion, Radio Free Mormon, Mormon Awakenings, The Mormon Wellness Project, Mormon History Podcast, Marriage on a Tightrope, and others. If these programs benefit you, and you want to see these continue, please consider making an annual donation starting today. All donations are tax-exempt inside the United States, and go towards keeping the podcast alive. Mormon Discussion and its lineup of great programs. Helping you navigate Mormonism one episode at a time. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. Grateful for the chance to be with you. Uh, just wanted to spend a moment talking about the uh, B1 celebration last night. It is uh, the 2nd of June, 2018. Last night, the church just held its 40th anniversary of the change in... Uh, policies and doctrine that allowed those of color of African descent to the males to receive the priesthood and both men and women to go to the temple. And I just want to say here before we kind of dive into this, that uh, when you look at this issue, when the race and priesthood essay came out, there's so many things that are going on with that essay that need to at least be mentioned so we can kind of navigate here what happens in this 40th anniversary celebration. So when the church makes the change in 78, shortly thereafter, Bruce R. McConkie, member of the Quorum of the Twelve, gives this uh, talk at BYU where he essentially says, look, forget everything that all of us have ever said. We were wrong. Uh, God has given us new light and we've had to adapt to that. And from that point until the race and priesthood essay came out, the church had been completely silent on the issue. And the question would be, why? Why be completely silent? Why say nothing? And I think it's because they know they're in a theological conundrum, which is no matter what they say about it, it's going to be deeply uncomfortable. If they, if they acknowledge that all of it was bullcrap, that it was all hinged in racism, then Orthodox members are going to lose faith in prophets. If they say it's from God and defend what leaders had always said about that ban, then they come off as racist jerks and they also make God a racist. So this large amount of time goes by and all of us in the church were left to try to figure out on our own, which, which, to be honest, is really wrong on the church's part. Like for them to not step up and give the context and to leave all the members to give it context on their own 
is sad and unfortunate because what they did was they allowed all of us members of the church to perpetuate something that was deeply racist and damaging and hurtful. So I joined the church in uh, 1996. Yes, 1996 I joined the church. And my future father-in-law teaches me about the race ban. And he teaches me all the theories behind it as if those were the truth. And so I grow up with these racist views within my, my Mormon conversion. And at one time I'm working at a fast food restaurant just after I joined the church, I'm working at McDonald's. And uh, I live in a, a city that's probably 50-50, uh, Caucasian, African-American. And I'm working at McDonald's, and there's several African-Americans that work there. And I'm friends with them. I mean, we have good conversations. We talk, we smile, we laugh, we joke. But one day, one of them, uh, somehow, somewhere in her life, had learned that Mormons had these beliefs against those of color. And she asked me about what Mormons believe about these kinds of things. And because nobody gave me a healthy framing. Nobody gave me room. Like I felt like I was only left to tell her the very truth of God. And I knew it was going to hurt. It was going to be offensive to her, but I also didn't want to lie. I didn't want to, I didn't want to tell her something that wasn't true. I wanted to tell her the truth. So I shared with her what my father-in-law had passed on to me. Now, again, the Mormon church, the LDS church, my church allowed me to do that because it was so scared to say anything. It was so uncomfortable to say anything. It, it left me and everyone else to pick up the pieces and figure it out on our own. And to be honest, it failed us. And so I share with this lady, these beliefs and immediately I'm, I've offended her. I've, I've hurt her feelings because what I did was perpetuate false, racist beliefs that our white, arrogant leaders had come up with. So fast forward, now the race and priesthood essay comes out, I don't know, 2013-ish. And you can tell what the church is trying to do there. They want to be ambiguous. They want to put down the theories. They want to put down the reasons for the race ban. But they want to leave the ban itself ambiguous. They want to leave everybody room to make up their own mind about whether the ban is from God or not. They want to leave everyone to read that race and priesthood essay and go, yeah, I can't say anymore that those of color were less valiant. They had some curse that, that the church is denouncing. But if I want to still believe the ban itself is from God, I can. And if I want to believe the ban is not from God, I can. But again, church leaders have determined we're just not going to touch that with a 10 foot pole. And so all of us as members have been left to sit back and to hear 
our leadership over the last five years since that essay came out and to be left wondering what ground the church really holds because it's not going to tell us. You see, the LDS church never answers the tough questions. They never sit with somebody in vulnerability and say, yeah, let's talk about it. Let's, let's talk about these hard conversations. Let's talk about where this logic goes. Let's talk about what these instances contain. Let's talk about the context involved. You see, that's how a healthy conversation happens. When I sit with my friends, people who are vulnerable, people who value authenticity, I sit with my friends and I say, why did you do that? And they give me their thought process. And I ask the logical questions and they sit with those and they answer them. You see, our family, we stepped back last December, December 2017, and we are on what I will call a sabbatical. And that sabbatical will continue until the LDS church becomes vulnerable, till it becomes authentic, till it values that in others, and until it deals head on with the LGBT issue. And the race and priesthood issue is very much in the same vein for me. It's something I, I have, I've never quite, um, never quite been able to make sense of, which I think is the case for all of us. And the church obviously doesn't really want to step into this space and talk about it. So this entire time you're left wondering what is, what is the church's real position here? Like they've left the essay ambiguous but what do they, what ground are they really going to hold? And, and I think you're going to see the church will officially remain ambiguous forever. Now, remember here, here's the 40th anniversary celebration last night. You just had Jonathan Streeter's fake apology in which people like uh, Zandra are deeply hurt by. And Zandra reaches out in her, in her, with her voice to President Nelson asking him to step up and to talk about this issue so that all of us can give it context and understand how the church itself is dealing with it and put it behind us or at least begin to. And so while I'd like to think that all members of color are at least on some level, aware of the racism in our church and aware of this racist theology and aware of the ambiguity of the ban itself and aware of the denouncing of these theories and can only imagine trying to be faithful in a church that's led by 15 white guys and now you have a little bit of diversity, right? Right? but certainly nobody of African descent. These 15 non-African descent leaders who are afraid to touch this issue with a 10-foot pole. So again, we're left like, where does the church stand? What does it believe? How does it frame these things? And then last night, Elder Oaks gets up and here's what he says. My dear brothers and sisters, there are some events that persist in almost everyone's memory, 
If you were living at the time of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, you remember where you were and what you were doing when you heard that terrible news. The same is true of the shocking attacks on what we call 9-11. For Latter-day Saints, who were adults at that time, the 1978 revelation on the priesthood was an event of such magnitude that it is also etched in memory. The news reached me on a telephone that seldom rang. My two sons and I were working in the yard of a mountain home we built as a place of retreat from my heavy responsibilities as president of Brigham Young University. My sons were between missions. The oldest had returned three weeks earlier, and the youngest was preparing to leave a year later. The earth was caving onto our driveway from a steep slope, and we were trying to stabilize the hillside. We were in the midst of this project, shovels in hand, when the phone rang inside the house. I knew it must be important. Only a small number of people had that telephone number and all had agreed not to call me about anything that could possibly wait. The caller was Elder Boyd K. Packer. He told me about the revelation on the priesthood, which was just being announced. We exchanged expressions of joy, and I walked back to the hillside. I sat down on the pile of dirt we had been moving and beckoned to my sons. As I told them that all worthy male members of the Church could now be ordained to the priesthood, I wept for joy. That is the scene etched in my memory of this unforgettable announcement 40 years ago, sitting on a pile of dirt and weeping as I told my sons of this divine revelation. Why was the revelation on the priesthood such an occasion of joy? As a young man in the legal profession, I lived in the Midwest and the East for 17 years. The restriction on the ordination and temple blessings of persons of African ancestry, almost invisible to me as I grew up in Utah, was a frequent subject of my conversations in my life in Chicago and Washington, D.C. I observed the pain and frustration experienced by those who suffered these restrictions and those who criticized the restrictions and sought for reasons. I studied the reasons then being given and could not feel confirmation of the truth of any of them. As part of my prayerful study, I learned that, in general, the Lord rarely gives reasons for the commandments and directions He gives to His servants. I determined to be loyal to our prophetic leaders and to pray, as promised from the beginning of these restrictions, that the day would come when all would enjoy the blessings of priesthood and temple. Now that day had come, and I wept for joy. Many Latter-day Saints felt joy at this news. The numbers of valiant and faithful members of African descent who had accepted the gospel despite the restrictions was then very small. 
Therefore, most of those who rejoiced were Anglo-Americans like me, who witnessed the pain of black brothers and sisters and longed for their relief. Among those who also wept for joy at the priesthood revelation were Dr. Russell M. Nelson and then Deputy Commissioner of Education Henry B. Eyring. In 1978, both of these men had lived outside the somewhat isolated environment of the Mountain West for more than a total of 40 years. They had also witnessed the pain of this restriction among their associates. When we consider what has happened in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and in the lives of its members since 1978, we all have cause for celebration. Institutionally, the Church reacted swiftly to the revelation on the priesthood. Ordinations and temple recommends came immediately. The reasons that had been given to try to explain the prior restrictions on members of African ancestry, even those previously voiced by revered church leaders, were promptly and publicly disavowed. Institutional policies or practices that could have inhibited the full integration of members of African ancestry such as the separate congregations common in many ch Christian churches, were prevented by the continuation of the long-standing LDS policy of ward membership being determined geographically. Similarly, membership records continued to make no mention of race or ethnicity. The Lord had spoken through His prophet and His church obeyed. In contrast, changes in the hearts and practices of individual members did not come suddenly and universally. Some accepted the effects of the revelation immediately and gracefully. Some accepted gradually. But some in their personal lives continued the attitudes of racism that had been so painful to so many throughout the world including the past 40 years. Others have wanted to look back, concentrating attention on re-examining the past, including seeking reasons for the now outdated restrictions. However, most in the Church, including its senior leadership, have concentrated on the opportunities of the future rather than the disappointments of the past. We have trusted the wisdom and timing of the Lord and accepted the directions of His prophet. In doing so, we have realized the eternal significance of God's prophetic teaching that one being is as precious in His sight as the other. We have also received new impetus to fulfill the command that we are to teach the everlasting gospel unto all to all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people. To concern ourselves with what has not been revealed or with past explanations by those who are operating with limited understanding can only result in speculation and frustration. To all who have such concerns, we extend our love and this special invitation. 
Let us all look forward in the unity of our faith and trust in the Lord's promise that He inviteth them all to come unto Him and partake of His goodness. And He denieth none that come unto Him, black and white, bond and free, male and female. As we look to the future, one of the most important effects of the revelation on the priesthood is its divine call to abandon attitudes of prejudice against any group of God's children. Racism is probably the most familiar source of prejudice today, and we are all called to repent of that. But throughout history, many groups of God's children have been persecuted or disadvantaged by prejudices, such as those based on ethnicity or culture or nationality or education or economic circumstances. As servants of God who have the knowledge and responsibilities of His great plan of salvation, we should hasten to prepare our attitudes and our actions, institutionally and personally, to abandon all personal prejudices. As President Russell M. Nelson said following our recent meeting with the national officers of the NAACP, together we invite all people, organizations, and governments to work with greater civility eliminating prejudice of all kinds." End of quote. Even as we unite to abandon all attitudes and practices of prejudice, we should remember that it is not prejudice for the Church to insist on certain rules in furtherance of the Lord's requirement of worthiness to enter a temple. The Lord has declared that obedience to covenants and commandments is an essential requirement to enjoy sacred blessings. Any attempt to erase divine requirements for eternal life and eternal families would be like trying to establish Satan's plan that all would be saved. In our premortal lives, we mortals already rejected Satan's plan. We chose the plan of our Heavenly Father, which provides the freedom to choose and keep the eternal covenants and commandments that apply equally to all. The equality of God is not equal outcomes for all, but equal opportunity for all. Our determination in this program is to celebrate the 40th anniversary of the Revelation on the Priesthood by looking forward. As we do, we express special appreciation for our marvelous members of African descent, especially our African-American members who have persisted in faith and faithfulness through a difficult transition period of fading prejudice. Now we unite together in concentrating our attention on the glorious post-1978 effects of that revelation in blessing the children of God all over the world. As our prophetic leaders declared at that time, the Lord has now made known His will for the blessing of all His children throughout the earth who will hearken to the voice of His authorized servants and prepare themselves to receive every blessing of the gospel.
Now temples are being built in many nations for the blessing of God's children on both sides of the veil. On earth and in heaven we rejoice together. This is essential to our preparation for the second coming of Him who declared through a Book of Mormon prophet that He commandeth none that they shall not partake of His salvation, and who declared through a modern prophet that if ye are not one, ye are not mine. We now invite you to join us in a program of messages and music that share the joy felt all over the world as more and more of God's children enjoy the blessings of the gospel we celebrate. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. So did you hear that? Did you hear what Elder Oaks just did? Let me play it again, but just the section that I'm talking about. And see if you pick up on how Elder Oaks presents to the church the position of how the church handles both the ban itself, the restriction, as well as the reasons behind it. I observed the pain and frustration experienced by those who suffered these restrictions and those who criticized the restrictions and sought for reasons. I studied the reasons then being given and could not feel confirmation of the truth of any of them. As part of my prayerful study, I learned that, in general, the Lord rarely gives reasons for the commandments and directions He gives to His servants. I determined to be loyal to our prophetic leaders and to pray, as promised from the beginning of these restrictions, that the day would come when all would enjoy the blessings of priesthood and temple. Maybe you still missed it. Maybe you still didn't get it. Let me play it one more time, but even in a more concise way. As part of my prayerful study, I learned that, in general, the Lord rarely gives reasons for the commandments and directions he gives to his servants. Do you see what he did there? The restrictions, the ban, was a commandment from God. People showed up last night. People of color and others as well. Deeply hurt by the racism in our church. Most of them deeply unsatisfied, unhappy with the ambiguity and lack of vulnerability on the part of our faith. But don't get me wrong. Being ambiguous is better than this. But you see, this is the only tenable position the church has. To say anything else puts deep cracks in our authority and our theology. So our only choice is to hold out that God is indeed the author and the conveyor of the commandment which emplaced 
these restrictions. Even though Brigham Young doesn't have a revelation on record, even though there's nothing official to point to, even though there is anecdotal evidence to show that Brigham Young was growing in his own racist beliefs because of his experiences in his life at the time, the only tenable position for the church is to hold on to that the ban and the restrictions are from God. That the ban, which is a restriction of those of color and their participation fully in the church, was a commandment of Heavenly Father communicating with his prophet. You didn't hear that? Let me play it again. As part of my prayerful study, I learned that, in general, the Lord rarely gives reasons for the commandments and directions he gives to his servants. To those of color and otherwise who are waiting for an apology, you're not going to get it. You're, it's beautiful. And again, I get what Jonathan Streeter did had unforeseen consequences. And if he had to do it over again, he probably wouldn't have done it. He, he says he surely wouldn't have done it. But what he did was the, the actual writing of that had our leaders given that would have been beautiful and would have initiated a reconciliation that would have put Mormonism back heading in the direction of being a healthy and good church. That's not what it did. Last night, Elder Oaks even further entrenched the idea. Everybody shows up. Some people are begging in their hearts for an apology. And the very least the church could have done was remain ambiguous. But no, the church realizes that the only real tenable position to its authority, which is the most important thing, always, anytime the church has a choice between perpetuating its authority and its narrative. And the narrative is only a tool to perpetuate the authority. Anytime it has a choice between that and protecting people and doing the right thing, it will do the former every single time. If the church is choosing between hurting you but that hurting you will protect its authority and its narrative. It will choose that every single time. So people show up last night and at the very least they're like, if you're going to say something negative, don't do it. Let's just be ambiguous. But please, by all means, let's give some context. Let's make amends. Let's reconcile. Elder Oaks goes beyond the race and priesthood essay. And seemingly puts his foot down and tries to do so softly, but he puts his foot down and says that I never got a confirmation of those uh, theories behind why the, the restrictions were in place, which I'd like to visit Elder Oaks. I'd like to go back in time. I'd like to get in uh, Marty McFly's car and take it back in time to when Elder Oaks and his two boys are holding shovels, I'd like to see if Elder Oaks was really crying. 
I'd like to go into Elder Oak's bedroom when he sang a prayer by his bedside, and I'd like to see him whisper to himself whether he believed in these racist theories put across as doctrines or whether he really didn't believe them. And if he didn't believe them, let's have a conversation about prophets, seers, and revelators that perpetuated those ideas as doctrine. You're telling me, Elder Oaks, that you did not believe those men's teachings were true on one hand, but on the other hand, you trust in your servants when they impose their teachings as true. I'd like to see if you cried. I'd like to see if you sat there by that mound of dirt with your shovel and you set your shovel down and tears of joy rang out of your eyes. I'd like to see that. To be honest, I have my doubts. Because I go back to just when I joined the church in 96 and I saw a lot of white people who were happy to talk about these theories and happy to perpetuate them and a church that never told them that that was wrong. It's amazing now that we've changed our perspective on this. Everybody I talked to was happy and they cried. Everybody cried when the 78 revelation came out. Everybody shed tears of joy. There wasn't a single racist in the church back then. There wasn't anybody who wanted this band to continue or who was arguing in favor of these theories besides maybe Mike Tannehill. I just, I don't buy it because I lived in this church at that time and I saw and, and was a product of white members perpetuating these ideas and doing so proudly. And yet everybody was heartbroken. Everybody had their, had tears out of their eyes. Here's what happened last night in, in this country, say you have a rental property. If you have a rental property and a multitude of potential tenants come to look at the home and a multitude of potential tenants want to see the house, they want to, they want to, they want to rent it. They want to have this home. They want to call it their own and they all fill out applications and they all give them to you. Now you've met with each one of them. One couple's Asian, one couple's white, another couple's African-American. You're legally not not allowed to discriminate. You're not allowed to have a reason that's based on color for why you turn down one applicant over another. You have to simply judge them based on the merit of whether they look like, talk like, act like they're going to take care of your home and be responsible. That's it. You cannot judge because of the color of their skin whether they're going to be responsible whether they're going to take care of your house. You have to judge them on their character. And the secret that everybody knows in this line of renting things out is that you don't ever give a re- you never give someone something that they can use against you for why you didn't give them the home. That's what the church just did last night. It has made Heavenly Father a racist, but have taken away Heavenly Father's ability to give any kind of reason. And so just like in the housing laws, the federal regulations, the church has played up this exact same line of thinking. Look, God created the restrictions. God imposed them. 
he doesn't give reasons for his restrictions. He doesn't give reasons for his commandments often. But it's from him. And since we don't have any reasons, we can't really judge him a racist. Not true. Heavenly Father, according to the LDS Church last night in Elder Oaks, let me play it one more time. As part of my prayerful study, I learned that, in general, the Lord rarely gives reasons for the commandments and directions he gives to his servants. This isn't God's servant's fault. Heavenly Father, he's a white guy. And he decided that those of color, there's some reason out there they can't participate fully in the gospel. But, you know... We don't really know what those reasons are, but we're just going to leave it hanging out there. Let me tell you, having stepped back last December, I there's still a part of me that's waiting like, come on, you're better than this. Come on, you can do it. Come on. Come on, you can do it. You can be healthier. You can do the right thing. You can you can be a little more vulnerable. You can be a little more authentic and you can value vulnerability and authenticity in others. Please. But no. Everybody who showed up last night, if you heard that little soundbite, you realized you were handed more racism. You were handed more hurt. You were handed more shame. You were handed more marginalization. And you were handed more trauma. I've said this numerous times in the past few months. When, when I started this transition, so let me go back. In fact, let's go way back. I knew the messiness really early on. And I just, I just kind of understood, like, our leaders don't know all this stuff. Like, as they get called in and previous leaders die, there's really no clean way to pass on the history, to pass on the conversations. In other words, D. Michael Quinn is privy to the first presidency minutes and he understands the context of some of these conversations. But these very men can't because they're not diving into that history and their predecessors have passed away. There's no healthy mechanism to pass on the knowledge and the experience so that so that people like uh, Elder Rasband, for instance, can understand what President Kimball exactly went through in the revelation of 1978 because all that's left is President Monson with dementia. There's nobody to share with him firsthand how this experience happened. And so I gathered that quickly in the church, like these guys can't be held accountable for not understanding these issues in depth like the scholars and the historians do, who have access and the ability and know where to dive into to understand how these things move from moment to moment. And so I, I made an assumption. And damn it, I made a lot of assumptions early on. And most of them turned out to be false. But I made the assumption that this church was good. It was good. And these leaders were prophets, seers, and revelators. And these leaders, they were trying with all their might to be good and to make this church positive and healthy and beneficial. They were. 
They're just lay they're just lay leaders. They didn't ask for this calling. They're trying their best. So I was prone to cut them slack and say, like, if they knew, if they understood, if they grappled and grasped the context and motion of all this movement in the church, all the way from Joseph Smith to how Brigham Young took power and going from prophet to prophet and why they did the things they did and what their personal feelings were, these guys... These guys would turn the ship. They'd, they'd get it right. They'd start to become more vulnerable and honest in terms of like being, and I don't want to say honest, like honesty, honest to the messiness, like acknowledging like, hey guys, we're sorry. Things have happened in this church that never should have. That race ban, the way we treated LGBT folks, that, that's going to change today. Like, I, I thought if this church was given the information, it would value goodness enough to self-correct. And as time went on, I little by little began to sense, like, wait a minute. These guys know more than we give them credit for. One of those instances was the BBC interview where a, uh, a English-British uh, journalist is asking Elder Holland questions. And he's asking, I think, tougher questions than what general authorities are normally asked. And Elder Holland is being very deceptive, which I've, I've grown to uh, expect at this point. But Elder Holland was very deceptive, trying to give uh, an incorrect answer, but put it across as truth to try and deflect the reality of where the question leads. Except this man had been prepped well enough that he knew to call Elder Holland on it. And you see Elder Holland stammer and stutter and have to readjust to the fact that this man's not going to let him off the hook when he gives a false answer. Um... When I saw how the church handled the the Swedish rescue, when I saw Leonard Arrington's commentary through Greg Prince's work and, and other places where he wasn't allowed to be vulnerable and authentic under the pressure of the church, when I watch this thing now from a distance, I see a deeply unhealthy, high demand fundamentalist religion that deeply, deeply prioritizes its authority and its narrative in as far as it supports its authority deeply values that over anything else, including the health and well-being of the members of this church. And so my, my two cents in here as I begin to kind of wrap up is that if you're sitting and you're waiting for this church to really change, that's why you're hanging on, is because you have a hope, man, this thing is good. It's going to self-correct. It can't keep doing this. Elder Oaks is here to tell you that that just is not the case. As part of my prayerful study, I learned that, in general, the Lord rarely gives reasons 
for the commandments and directions he gives to his servants. I watched five minutes last night. And, and that five minutes was Elder Oaks talking. And at that point, I turned it off. I thought to myself, that's bullshit. But it's the only bullshit they can give to keep this whole thing going. And when I, I grasped that, I realized that this thing wasn't good. For the, like, the last moment, I just let go of that last little bit. This thing isn't good. And this thing isn't, isn't going to be vulnerable. It's not going to change. And the fact that my family has been out now for going on six months. And in that six months, my marriage has become so strong. My relationship with my children is much more grounded, much more authentic. We're having real conversations. Just sitting in uh, with my son, my youngest, 12 years old. Just sitting with him yesterday and having the healthiest of conversations. Inside the tribe, we all shield each other from ourselves and from others. We let people see what we want them to see. And our public conversation is so much different than the thoughts inside our head and the things we wrestle with. And outside now, as an inactive member of the church, so much more vulnerability, so much more authenticity, so much more fun with friends who are also vulnerable and authentic, so much more depth to the relationship with my wife and my children. Mormonism tricks you into thinking that happiness exists inside the tribe. Real happiness only inside the tribe. The reality is real happiness difficult to find in there when you're not able to be yourself. May the Lord warm your shoulders. In the name of Jesus Christ. 